Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 19. The John who writes is the disciple and apostle of our Lord, and the John of whom he writes is the Baptist. So we will be reading of John the Baptist. Let's read John 1, verses 19 through 37. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent of the Pharisees, were of the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water." And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Thus far, we read the divinely inspired sacred scripture this evening. The text for the sermon is verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, tonight we consider the gospel at its very heart, the simple, beautiful, clear expression of the holy gospel as we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. There are many things vying for our attention in the world and in the church and in our own personal lives and how good it is for a few moments tonight to have all of our thoughts focused upon the Savior, who is the Lamb of God. And how important for us, too, in a week of self-examination as we prepare to come 
to the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, not only to think about our sins and the curse due unto us for them, but to think about our Savior. And then that second part of self-examination, whether we believe that this faithful Savior has by His blood taken away all of our sins so that we can come in good confidence next Sunday morning. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Before we look at the text, let's take just a brief moment to familiarize ourselves with the context. John the Baptist speaks the words of the text, and he did it on a certain day, for we read in the text, the next day, and so on. The history goes like this. John was by the Jordan River baptizing And Jesus came to him to be baptized, and afterward, he went out into the wilderness to be tempted, all by himself, by the devil, for 40 days. And while Jesus is out there in the wilderness being tempted, John is still by the Jordan. He's baptizing, he's preaching, he's teaching, I am not the Christ, one greater than I is coming. So crowds are coming out to Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. And near the end of that 40-day period, John received a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem. And they come asking him, Art thou the Christ? And once again, he denies it. I'm not the Christ. He keeps baptizing. He keeps preaching. Then we have the words of the text, The next day, That 40-day period, at the end of which, here come the delegation from Jerusalem, and now the next day. And that's when John sees Jesus coming out of the wilderness, walking past all these crowds of people, coming unto Him. And then he makes that great declaration of the text, Behold, the Lamb of God. There's another day in the context. For in the verses that follow, John will recount how he had earlier baptized Jesus. Then we read in verse 35 again the next day. And then what follows. And what follows is the record of Jesus beginning to choose his disciples and call his disciples unto him. And then he'll go out into his public ministry preaching and teaching. So we have a cluster of events here. And if we put all of the events together, we have a day. It's the day of the text. Before this day, Jesus finishes his private temptations in the wilderness. After this day, Jesus will select his disciples and go publicly preaching and teaching. And now it's on this day that John the Baptist will declare to all of Judea, who this one is that will now go preaching and teaching. And he does that when he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So let's consider the text tonight with a view to the administration of the supper next Sunday morning. Let's take as our theme, the Lamb of God come. Notice first, the coming of Him. Second, the work of Him. And third, the seeing of Him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And the coming of Him refers not only to His literal, visible, physical coming, so that the text says, the next day John seeth, seeth, literally, seeth Jesus coming unto Him. But in the deepest sense of the word, the coming of the Lamb is the appearance of Jesus Christ now as the realization of all those Old Testament picture lambs which were pointing ahead to Him. So in order to understand the coming of the Lamb of God, we have to go back for just a few moments into the Old Dispensation to learn a few things about all those picture lambs that were pointing to Him. So, let's take a brisk walk through the Old Dispensation and let's make four key stops along the way. First of all, we begin at the time of Abel. 
Abel offered unto God the firstling of his flock. No doubt because he had been taught by his parents, Adam and Eve, that he's a sinner and he must offer unto God a sacrifice for sin in the hope of a better sacrifice to come. And so by faith, Abel understood that his sin, as it were, was being placed on that sacrifice as a substitute and and pointing to a better sacrifice to come. And therefore, that substitute would satisfy the justice of God and cover in the sight of God all of his sins. So he brought his offering. Now, already in the days of Abel, God was teaching his people that the promised Messiah must die. God cannot die. An angel cannot die. This seed of the woman, whoever he is, whenever he comes, he must be able, just like this lamb, he must be able to die as a sacrifice for sin. The time of Abel. Now we move to the time of the Passover lamb in Egypt. And there God taught His people three more truths. First of all, the necessity of blood was explicitly established. The sacrificial lamb could not be poisoned. It could not be strangled. It could not be bludgeoned to death. But the lamb would have to have its throat slit. And then all of the blood would be collected in a basin. And then you take that blood and you smear it. All over the doorposts, blood. When God sees blood, He will spare the firstborn. When God sees blood, He will avert His wrath. When God sees blood, He will cover sin. The Messiah must have blood. Secondly, God taught His people there in the Passover lamb that the Messiah would not only be for individuals like Abel, but households. The whole household would have to bring a Passover lamb. The Messiah is for households. And third, God taught that the Messiah, the lamb here, would be eaten in a fellowship meal. So that the Israelites took their Passover lamb, they brought it to the altar, and the meat was cooked. And then they took that meat back home and they set it on the table. And the whole family gathered around the table and they ate The Passover lamb in fellowship indicating that when the Messiah comes one day and he dies, his death will not be the cause of weeping and sorrow, but the basis for fellowship and joy in the household. Blood, households, fellowship. That's the Passover. Abel, The Passover, our third stop is at Mount Sinai where God gave to Israel the whole of the Mosaic Law. And there God taught Israel three more truths. First of all, the Mosaic Law demanded continual sacrifices. So that a lamb on the altar in the morning and a lamb on the altar in the evening, every day, continual sacrifices at the tabernacle. Secondly, This was true of the Passover lamb, but here it was explicitly established in the law that the sacrifice must be without blemish, indicating that the coming Messiah must be perfectly righteous and holy. And then third, the Mosaic law required the sacrifice to be offered at the tabernacle, at the temple, And so this was a sacrifice not merely for individuals and not merely for households, but for the nation. A sacrifice for God's nation. Let's make one more key stop, our last one, and that's during the time of Isaiah where the revelation sharpened considerably because it was through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah that God taught the people the coming lamb would be a person, a man, the servant of Jehovah, the man of sorrows. 
And he would be a man with a willing heart, for he would be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, he would, uh, he would suffer so much injustice, but he wouldn't retaliate as a ferocious, vicious beast. Meekly, quietly, and humbly he would go, for he is, says Isaiah, brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shear is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 7. That was a brisk walk through the old dispensation, but if you stand where John the Baptist did, now, at the dawn of the new dispensation, and you look back over the old, you see lambs, and lambs, and lambs, and more lambs than you could ever count. Dying lambs as sacrifices for sin on the altar. Passover lambs with sprinkled blood and flesh eaten in feasting. Lambs without blemish. Lambs on the altar in the morning. Lambs on the altar in the evening. Lambs for individuals. Lambs for households. Lambs for the nation. One lamb after another quietly led to the slaughterhouse of the tabernacle. And all of them, God could count them, more than anyone could count, but all of them were picture lambs, and Israel knew it. There wasn't one of them that could take away sin. Not one of them could purge the conscience before God. Not one of them could give the sinner a right to stand before the living God. They were all pictures. And now do you think there was a more climactic moment in the history of the world to this point than when John the Baptist stood there by the Jordan River and here he comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of the wilderness in front of all of these people and now John declares, Behold the Lamb of God. For all those years, God said through pictures, the Lamb is coming. And now God gives to John the Baptist that great privilege to be able to announce, the Lamb of God is come. After all those years when the saints were crying out, and really you'd have to go all the way back to Adam and Eve and Abel, how long, O Lord? How long? And that cry intensified through the old dispensation. When will the Lamb come to take away our sin? And now John declares, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's come. He's come as the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. And that's very important. And that means at least six different truths. I'll give them to you very briefly, almost, at bullet point, almost as bullet points. Lamb of God. And what we're really doing here is laying the whole foundation and setting ourselves up for the second point of the sermon and the astounding teaching that this lamb will take away the sin of the world. And he can only do that if he is the lamb of God. First of all, that he's the lamb of God means he's begotten of God. Yes, he has a human nature according to which he can suffer, die, and even bleed as an angel cannot. But he's not merely a man. He is God of God, having a divine nature, being the very Son of God. He's the lamb of God, begotten of God, and only because He is God will He be able to take away the sin of the world. Secondly, that He is the Lamb of God means He has been eternally appointed by God to be that great Lamb toward whom all those picture lambs were pointing so that once He comes, you can take all those pictures and take them away. You don't need to bring a lamb to church. We're finished with lamb sacrifices. He's the lamb. His flesh we eat. His blood covers us. And He's the source of our joy. And into all eternity we will surround Him and cry, Worthy is the lamb that was appointed by God. 
Third, that he's the Lamb of God means he is provided by God. He did not come by the will and the work of any man. Abel could not bring him forth. Isaiah could not give him to Israel. There was no shepherd who could say, look, I have the Lamb of God. Not even Mary herself could give to Israel the long-awaited Lamb of God. It is only the faithful covenant-keeping Jehovah who can come to Israel and say, I give you the Lamb provided by God. Fourth, that He is the Lamb of God means He has the spotless righteousness of God. He's not the Lamb of Adam, fallen and corrupt. He is the Lamb of God. Perfectly righteous, holy, morally perfect, sinlessly pure. The Lamb of God. Fifth, that He's the Lamb of God means He's qualified by God. He had just been baptized by the Holy Ghost who came upon Him as the mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit qualifies Him to go out now into His public ministry, perform all of His work, and be led to the slaughterhouse where He will take away the sin of the world. He's qualified by the Spirit of God. Sixth, and finally, that He is the Lamb of God means that He is loved by God. You remember that story, parable, that was told by Nathan the prophet to David when he came to convict David of his sin, how there was that poor man who had his one little ewe lamb that would sit at his table with his sons and daughters, eat from his hand, drink out of his cup. That little lamb would lie in the bosom of that man because he loved his lamb. The Lamb of God. Beloved of God. And he needs to know that because when he goes to that slaughterhouse and he lies on that altar of fire and doesn't experience the love of God, he needs to know that he is, forever is, loved by God as the Lamb of God. Here he is now. He's come. The Lamb of God is come. And exactly because he is the Lamb of God, of God. He's able to perform the astonishing work of the text. And the work of Him, according to the text, is which or who the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which or who taketh away the sin of the world. That's His work. World, which taketh away the sin of the world. Say that. Confess that. Without any hesitation, without any nervousness. World. That's not Arminianism. That's the gospel of the authoritative scriptures. Say it. World, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then understand that by the term world, John the Baptist did not mean, no one in his audience misunderstood him to mean, the inspired Apostle John who writes these words did not mean, and the Holy Spirit who inspired these words did not mean, every single human being head for head none accepted world does not have to mean every single human being head for head luke 2 verse 1 there went a, uh, there went out a decree from caesar augustus that all the world should be taxed 
And no one has ever thought that Caesar Augustus was attempting to tax every single human being, none accepted, including those on distant continents that had not yet even been discovered. All the world refers to the taxable people of the known world of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean Sea. World does not have to mean every single human being. When world in the text is interpreted as every single human being, then we have the profane Arminian heresy, which reduces the Lamb of God to nothing but a powerless and defeated beggar. Arminianism teaches that Jesus Christ died to take away the sin of every single human being none accepted. Jesus died for all human beings. But that death did not actually take away the sin of every human being. Because even Arminianism acknowledges that millions and millions of people will die and go to hell. So, if Jesus died for every single human being, why do so many human beings go to hell? Well, the only way, according to Arminianism, that the Lamb's death can actually save someone is if it is followed by what is the decisive act of salvation. And the decisive act is the will of the sinner. So that Jesus dies for all, and Jesus loves all, and Jesus comes in the gospel and freely offers himself to all, and he pleads with all, won't you now accept me into your heart? And then, whoever makes a decision to choose Jesus, to accept him, and to allow him to come into his heart, those people are saved. For they are the ones who exercise their so-called free will and choose him. But the reality is that many reject Jesus, and they are damned, and they go to hell. So now we have a Jesus who died for all, to redeem all, to save all. He loves all. He pleads with all to accept Him. He does everything He can for their salvation, but man stymies Jesus. The will of the sinner triumphs over the will of of the Lamb whose blood is shed in vain for many. We can have more respect for a full-blown universalism which teaches that God loves all human beings and Jesus died for all human beings and there is no hell. Everyone goes to heaven for at least the death of Jesus saves. World in the text, does not mean every single human being, none accepted. And that's made very plain in the text by the words, which taketh away. Behold, the Lamb of God, which or who taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb did not merely intend to take away. He did not merely have a desire to take away. He did not merely try to take away or attempt to take away, but he actually, truly, effectually took away the sin of every human being for whom he died so that the payment is made, the wrath of God is appeased, righteousness is obtained, and all of the blessings of salvation, including faith itself, have been earned and will be freely bestowed. He takes away. If the Lamb took away, actually took away, the sin of every human being, well then every human being will be saved. Everyone including Cain and Pharaoh and Judas Iscariot and the Antichrist. No exceptions. If he took away the sin of all, then all will be saved. Because God is just 
And God will not receive the payment of Jesus and then come to the man and say, now you must pay. The payment has been made. But not all are saved, for the Lamb did not take away the sin of every human being. The Lamb took away the sin of His elect sheep. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. When the text says world, the text means the entire living organism of elect humanity as the elect are found all throughout the world. And this is astonishing world. Not merely elect individuals like Ahab. Not merely elect family members in the household. Not merely the elect among God's nation of Israel. Now, world. The whole world of elect humanity. Elect Jews and elect Gentiles as they're found in every nation, among every tribe, in every tongue. World. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Those of his elect sheep who live in the northern hemisphere and those who live in the southern hemisphere, those who live in third world countries and those who live in first world countries, those who live in the cold Arctic and those who live in the warm tropics, those who live in the vast prairie lands and those who live on the little islands of the sea, those who speak Hebrew, those who speak English, those who have black skin, those who have white skin, those who are poor, those who are rich, those who are bond, those who are free. World, he taketh away the sin of the world, the entire humanity according to election. All of God's elect as they're found throughout the world. World. Sin. He taketh away the sin of the world. As it often is, the Bible is surprising. And here it's surprising because probably all of us would expect the plural, which taketh away the sins of the world. The Bible uses the singular, the sin. In order to understand the text, it would be helpful for us to imagine a living, an organic mass. One mass. Perhaps you could think of a cancerous mass. But now think big. Really big. Imagine in your mind the mushroom cloud that was suspended over Hiroshima, Japan, August 6, 1945. Mass that big. One mass. Picture an enormous, polluted, stinking, vile, black, hideous, terrifying, destructive, deadly, damning, guilt-producing, shame-evoking, consequence-bringing, pain and suffering-causing, punishment-demanding, wrath of God-kindling, God-despising, God-despised mass. Its name, sin. And this is now the sin of the world. That is, that whole organism of elect humanity. So included in this mass called sin in the text is all of the sin of Adam and Eve and Abel and each one of the elect, including you and me, all your sinfulness and your sinful thoughts and words and deeds and every inclination. This is the mass 
of the sin of the predestinated. And when you start digging into this mass to see what's in there, hideous and vile as it is, you find all kinds of sins, including all of your sins. We find in there our childhood sins. Oh God, we sang that. Remember not my sins of youth. All our childhood sins and our teenager sins and our high school sins and our adult sins and our secret sins and our public sins and our school sins and our church sins and our household sins and our work sins and our when we were on vacation sins and our marriage sins and our repeated sins, our besetting sins, our heart sins, our tongue sins, our worship service sins, our right now in God's house sins, all our sins. In this mass, millions and millions and billions and billions of sin. The Bible says that the elect are like all of the sand by the side of the seashore. More than you could ever count all those little granules of sand. And you take one of those little granules representing an elect sinner. And that one has more sin than you could ever count. And now you put all this sin together in this enormous mass that is not called individual sin, household sin, nation sin. But it's called world sin. What a hideous mass. And now before you come to the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, can you imagine what it would be like for you to live this week if you had that whole mass hanging over your head and you were responsible for it before God? And you try to imagine the fury. Look at that mass Imagine the fury of the wrath of the infinitely holy God when he looks at that abominable mass. The mass which in the text is called sin. The sin. Now, the very lovely word of the gospel is that Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He takes it away. Before He takes it away, He takes it. Isn't that something? As the Lamb of God, perfectly pure and spotless, He comes and He takes that mass. He says, as He looks at it, Father, mine. And God imputes the guilt of it all unto Him. And not only the guilt of it, but all of the punishment that must be meted out because of that mass called sin. He takes it. And what's so striking in the text is that we have the present tense of the verb when we would probably expect the future. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away, present tense, right now, and not, says John the Baptist, which shall in the future, when He goes to the cross, take it away. Here He comes, out of the wilderness, having just been tempted, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which, present tense, is Taking away the sin of the world. He's taking that mass. Now, of course, it will be at the end. All the guilt of that heavy mass will fully weigh down upon his consciousness at the end. And that's why he will cry out in the garden now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful. And he will begin to sweat those great drops 
of blood. It's at the end when the shearers will come to him into the garden and they will take him and they will lead him into the hall of judgment and lead him down that path to that slaughter house called Golgotha. And there the lamb will be nailed to the cross. He will lie down on the altar in the fire of God's wrath. And as never before, all the hideous The weight of that hideous mass will be pressed down upon him and all the punishment of God's curse will come down upon him as never before in body and soul so that he cries out in inexpressible agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At the end, especially at the end, but it wasn't only at the end. Already now, when he comes walking out of the wilderness, he's taking that mass in the state of humiliation, already becoming aware of the guilt of it and the punishment of it. And he will carry that. And more and more, he will become conscious of it. The mediator, as he goes to the cross, he takes it. Who can imagine the life he lived as he takes that mass called sin. But he not only takes it. This is the heart of the gospel of the text. Away. Away. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He takes it away. At His cross where He died, there His blood paid the price. His spotless life and willing death satisfied God's justice as He and only He can. He took away the sin. The cross. At that cross, the mass was taken away in an objective sense, once and for all, He took away that sin. And that guarantees that as Jesus the Lamb now sits at God's right hand in heaven, He will apply all of the benefits of that once for all work on the cross in a subjective way to His people. So that by His Spirit, He makes us conscious the weight of the guilt of our transgressions. And He causes us by His Spirit to cry out, Oh God, oh God, my Father in heaven, I cannot take one more step. Not one. I cannot go any further. The weight of the guilt of my sin is too much, oh God. For Jesus' sake, take it away. And because of what Jesus did at that cross, in the objective sense, when once and for all He took away the sin of the world, God applies the benefits of that death to us by taking away, in a subjective sense, taking away the sin, the guilt, the weight, so that, ah, There's pardon. There's relief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He taketh away the sin of the world. And we feel that in our own consciousness when God pardons us of our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What a picture. Isn't that something? If you imagine that, that enormous mass and underneath it, and not a city, it's not a fortress, it's not a citadel, it's not a castle, it's not an army of a million soldiers, but a lamb One lamb, but not just any lamb, the lamb of God. And he alone takes away the sin of the world. See him, 
with the eyes of faith, know Him, trust in Him, believe in Him. John saw Him. We read in the text, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto Him. Very very literally, with his physical eyes, John saw Jesus. But John did not merely see Jesus with his physical eyes because were that the case, he simply would have seen what many others saw, just another man. He has his robe, he has his sandals. And they would, John would dismiss him and reject him and go his own way as so many in the crowds did because they only saw Jesus with their physical eyes. But John saw him spiritually with the eyes of faith. And that's demonstrated in the text by the fact that John declares, Behold, never would have said this had he not had the eyes of faith. Behold, the Lamb of God. John believed in him as his own personal Savior. And John is determined that others see him and believe in him. And so he cries, Behold! And that little interjection is designed to get people to stop. Stop in your tracks. And now you look at him. Look! Behold, the Lamb of God. And what John is really doing there is issuing the call of the Gospel. So that when the Gospel of Jesus Christ goes out, Jesus Christ is exhibited as the glorious Savior of God, the Lamb of God. And then accompanying that exhibition of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel is always the call of the Gospel. Behold, that is, see Him, know Him, believe in Him, Embrace Him. Trust Him. And because of that once for all work finished by Jesus Christ on the cross, that guarantees that the Holy Spirit will take that word of the call, wherever it is sounded in the preaching of the Gospel, believe. The Holy Spirit will take that call and He will effectually work it in the hearts of God's elect people, the fruit of which is that all of them do believe, see Him, know Him, trust in Him as His or her own personal Savior. Behold the Lamb of God. See Him. Set your heart on Him. And no one else, because all other hopes will deceive you. And so as we continue through the rest of this week with a view to Holy Communion, see the Lamb by faith and set your heart on Him. Don't set your heart, don't fix your heart on a minister, not even if his name is John the Baptist. John always said, don't look at me. Don't fix your heart on me. Don't pin all of your hopes on me. Do you know that I'm not even worthy to get down on my hands and knees and start to loosen the latchets of the one who is coming? He must increase in your eyes and in your heart. He must increase and become greater and greater to you. And I, John, and all ministers with me must decrease and become smaller and smaller in your eyes and in your heart. The Gospel never says, Behold this man or that minister, even if he be John the Baptist. The Gospel only declares, Behold the Lamb of God. See him. Do not set your heart upon and fix your heart upon your mass. Maybe you have actually have a physical mass, a, a cancerous mass. Don't see in the sense of setting your heart upon and fixing your heart upon your mass. So that the condition of your soul rises or falls dependent upon whether or not your mass goes away or remains. 
Behold the Lamb. Do not fix your heart upon your mass. Whatever it may be as a heavy burden, a heavy affliction in your life that feels so heavy. Don't set your heart upon it so that all you see, all you think about, all you ever talk about is this adversity in your life. But you never see Him. And the one in whom is so much hope and peace and joy. Behold the Lamb of God. And finally, do not set your heart upon your sins. And this now especially in a week of self-examination. You have to see your sin. And you and I must see our sin for what it really is. And the punishment that we deserve for it and what it did to the Lamb, what it did to Him, especially on that cross. And God calls us to repentance and acknowledging our sin. We have to see our sin. But in this week of self-examination, do not dwell upon your sin so that all you see is your sin. And certainly, do not go back into your past and start dredging up some great sin of your past that you've confessed before God and now you dredge that up and you bring it before your consciousness and you torment yourself by that sin. Now maybe God will bring it before your consciousness but don't you go digging around in your past and focus on your sin. Repent. That's the command of Scripture. But believe. See, more than your sin, see the Lamb, the Lamb of God, and the Word of the Gospel. Believe it, that He took away all your sin. See Him. Behold, says John. And really, we need that every week. Uh, A shake a shaking and a waking behold. Behold! Exclamation mark. Because we get so familiar with the gospel. We get so accustomed to the gospel and to the lamb and to his sacrifice. And sometimes we conclude our prayers saying, and forgive all my sins for Jesus' sake. And our heart wasn't in it. What do we need We need the Holy Spirit to take that behold and wake us up within and cause us to see again the Lamb of God as we have never seen Him before in all of His beauty and glory and believe in Him. So may God give us faith and bring you to the Holy Supper next Sunday morning to behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give thee thanks, undeserving as we are, for the unspeakable gift who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause us to appreciate him more and more. And then if we do, truly in the heart, may we never be ashamed of the gospel, but be willing to speak of the one who is willing to take our sin. So give us a heart of faith and a voice and a tongue that is willing to confess the name of Jesus. In his precious name do we pray. Amen.